0: Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Welcome to the podcast. This is the February Almanac episode of Fair Folk called Wolf Milk. In these Almanac episodes, I comb through European calendar custom, that is, folklore relating to the cycle of the year, typically with a focus on Northern Europe, and I share what I find with you to help you orient the month ahead. Equipped with knowledge of nourishing traditions that can help reconnect you to the natural cycles of the year, to land and the life in the plants, animals, our bodies, and ourselves. Seasonal folklore and festivals call us back into community with all beings on the earth in its regular spinning wheel of life and death, and they help us to tend through ritual our ties to our kin of all species, both our ancestral kin and our future kin, to come. The recovery of European traditional cultures, the ones that privilege relationality, interconnection and respect for all beings, which you might call indigenous cultures, is so early in its stages, we're still just starting to recover a lot of the knowledge that's been lost. So there's a lot of healing and research to do, both through folklore and paganism, So I can't always really tell you what to do with the information that I share or exactly what it all means. But what I feel like what I'm doing here is to find the various drawers where this heirloom cutlery is stashed and shake them all out in a big pile and then make some vague gestures to organize them for you. But if I go too far in that process, I think I'm doing you a disservice. It seems to me that my biggest role is to show you as much as I can of what draws my interest and attention from the historical record and from folklore, and then maybe propose a theory or two, and then leave it up to you to run with and to do more research, if you will. So I hope that at the end of this episode, what you take from it is an interest in an aspect of February folklore, or a general sense, a sense that you might be able to embody through the month and get really curious about. And this month, that theme will probably have something to do with wildness. This time, when I surveyed the folklore of February, as I've done in the past, a few motifs flashed out at me like gold in firelight, starting with a ritual in ancient Rome. And these motifs gathered more solidity and momentum and connections as I surveyed holidays from around Europe in February. So that's how I'll structure this episode. I'll start with Lupercalia in Rome, and then I'll spread out and look at the holidays of the month in other areas and how they relate to the motifs and themes in that celebration in Rome. There is a remarkable prominence in February of holidays through the month that feature practices, figures, and tales relating to childbirth and breast milk. Wolves, and particularly she-wolves, purification, and we'll talk about what that means, the dawn and dusk, twins and sometimes thunder, and ultimately the cycle of life and death and how the two feed into one another. Some important dates this month, according to what seems important to me and my priorities here, are February 1st, that's St. Brigid's Day, or Breed's Day in Scotland, February 2nd, which is the Christian celebration of Candle Mass, also known as Gromnica or Gromnica in Slavic areas, or Perkunas Day or Perun's Day in Baltic areas. February 14th is St. Valentine's Day, which I won't go into detail about in this episode, but you can easily find the origins of that holiday yourself. February 15th is Lupercalia from ancient Rome. February 21st, is Mardi Gras, or the end of Carnival, and the start of Lent in the Christian calendar, which I also won't discuss explicitly in this episode, but that you can find amazing information about according to the region that you're most interested in. And February 22nd, which is known as St. Peter Hot Stone in Scandinavian areas, traditionally. And this is a holiday that's associated with thunder gods, much like February 2nd, and I'll go into that in much more detail. So I'm starting this episode by looking at the occasion called Lupercalia, which is an ancient Roman festival. And I'm starting here not because I think that ancient Rome is more important than any of the other regional traditions of Europe, though it has had a big influence on them. I'm starting there because that's where I started in my research, because it's a holiday that has really interested me in the past with the images and the themes that it brings together. And also because it's a remarkably well-preserved depiction of a pagan ritual in pre-Christian times, which is a pretty rare object to have and deserves some deep study. A lot of folks, even at the time of Lupercalia's occurrence regularly on February 15th in ancient Rome, a lot of folks were mystified by the contents of this ritual and of this festival and came up with various explanations for it. To me, it seems pretty self-explanatory in some ways that I'll go into via comparison with other cultural events at this time. I think that the themes that arise in Lupercalia are natural to February in some ways. So Ovid and Plutarch are the two writers from whom we draw most of the information that we have about Lupercalia, and they speculate that these rituals come from Greek or Etruscan origins, and since they were uncertain, we also don't know where these ideas originated. But personally, I would say, again, it has to do with the natural cycle of the year and the symbolic associations that attach themselves to it. So Lupercalia is a festival celebrated at the Lupercal by the Luperci. The Lupercal is an important site in the city of Rome because of the story of the two twin brothers, Romulus and Remus, who you may have heard of. Their uncle, King Amulius, who had deposed his own brother as king, was concerned about succession. He ordered that the two children, Romulus and Remus, be exposed, that is, left out to die, which was a common way of disposing of unwanted infants at the time in ancient Rome and in other cultures. But the servants, tasked with exposing the twin brothers, placed them in a basket and into the river Tiber instead. And they wound up on the shore, found by a she wolf who took them to her cave and famously suckled them herself, keeping them alive. That cave is called the Lupercal. The two boys were eventually raised by a shepherd and a shepherdess, and Romulus later murdered his brother and is credited. With the founding of Rome. This she wolf story is incredibly well known as foundational to the founding of Rome, and therefore, this she wolf suckling twin human boys is the symbol of the city of Rome. Though this cave, the Lupercal, nobody knows exactly where it is now. They know that it was at the Palatine Hill, but we don't know which part of the hill. And someone said they found it in 2007, but that seems like it was actually just a room of someone's palace, and not necessarily the cave, simply a cave on the hill, which had many caves historically. So for many centuries, the Lupercal was the location of this festival called Lupercalia. Luper from lupus, meaning wolf, so the wolf's cave. And it was celebrated by the Luperci, which were the brotherhood of the wolf. They weren't priests themselves, but they were organizers of this festival. The ritual consisted of a sacrifice of a billy goat and a dog, presumably the dog being a stand in for the wolf, though that's not certain. After the two animals were slaughtered, two young noble boys would be led to the cave and their foreheads would be smeared with the knife of the sacrifices, while the Luperci. Were reportedly laughing. There's something important about the laughter. I'm not sure what it is. Then, some sheep wool would be taken, dripped in milk, and the milk would be used to wipe the blood off of the heads of the young noble boys. Next, the sacrifices would be eaten in a feast, and the men involved would cut strips of the goat's skin and run through the streets naked with it, striking women on the hands who volunteered for the honor since this was supposed to help pregnant women with birth and women who wish to conceive to conceive. And these strips were called februa, a word which we understand was associated with purification, which is a theme I'll be exploring through the rest of this month as well. So this festival of Lupercalia ties up in itself these themes of innocence, childbirth, violence, Death, milk, and nurturing, and the fact that the children were later raised by a shepherd and his wife also brings into the equation this dichotomy that develops in agricultural societies that have shepherds as a main part of their economy between wolves and sheep, between the wild animal and the domestic animal, and all of the implications that are tied up. In that dynamic, what purification means and how it relates to February is a fantastic question that I'm very interested in myself because I understand that it probably means something different in a pagan context than it might mean in the context that we're accustomed to receiving it, which is a Christian context and usually has some implication about the body and sexuality and fertility and femininity. And those associations tend to be negative. And I would say that the purification and its relationship to feminine fertility in the Lupercalia ritual would not necessarily be a negative thing, or implying that women were somehow unpure, just to be clear. This is the band Fawn with their song Lupercalia, which describes in Latin, as far as I understand, the delight of a god- running naked in the hills. The story of Romulus and Remus echoes a much older motif in Indo-European languages in general and cultures that seems to originate in proto-Indo-European culture. And that's this idea of the divine twins. Two brothers appear often in Indo-European folklore, that is the language root of most European languages, and they tend to be connected with horses and with helping people And with navigation, especially on water. The figures of Cain and Abel may also belong to this tradition, and they have this dual association with shepherding and with grain farming that seems to connect as well with the dichotomy of Romulus and Remus and their relationship to a wolf, but also to a shepherd. And the conflict between them, how one murders the other. Cain and Abel are biblical figures, and Cain murders Abel. There is in both of these stories a dynamic between this sense of sheep like passivity or the protection of that kind of naive, youthful mindset that the sheep represents and a wolf like murderousness that tends to show up in related narratives. Even ballads from the 19th century, like the Two Sisters ballad, which seems to speak to a duality of gentleness and violence, where one sister who's dark murders the other sister who's fair, like a sheep and a wolf, because they're interested in the same man, because they're in competition for love. And these kinds of figures in conflict and in dynamic tension could be metaphors for predators and prey in the wild, which need to maintain balance. And so there is a ritual importance to this dynamic between the innocent sheep and the wily wolf. But neither should be, I think, considered evil or good, which is what happens later in the folklore of wolves, but isn't necessarily there, I think, in earlier wolf folklore, as I'll demonstrate. The origin for the Divine Twin stories might originate in the twin stars that appear in the Gemini constellation, which happened to be most visible in February of all months, and accompany the goddess of the dawn in folklore, the rising sun, who is often described as their sister, and who appears in folklore of April and surrounding months, and after whom Easter is named. Their connection with horses and their assistance in navigation can also be explained by the story of them as the twin stars, because those two stars were used in navigation and because the sun Was often described in many Indo European traditions as being born on the back of a chariot or a wagon pulled by two horses. As far as wolves go, they are a massive body of information in European tradition. In the myth and folklore of Germanic areas, that is, Scandinavia and countries like Germany and the Netherlands, who speak Germanic languages. They are represented extremely often across time. It's the most common animal name to be included as a part of a human name in Scandinavia, particularly, and in Old Norse records. They are connected with Odin, especially in terms of his connection to warriors and to shamanism, to shape shifting and trance. Odin is often depicted visually with two wolves at his side an image that may also be echoed on the purse clasp that's been found among the Sutton Hoo burial treasures on a decorative garnet gold and glass plaque the image is pretty striking if you haven't seen it i recommend you look it up so these two wolves are neutral or positive but Odin is also accompanied by a wolf, or in conflict with a wolf, at the end of the world at Ragnarok. Fenrir, the giant wolf who is a son of Loki and the giant Angerboda, is prophesied to swallow both Odin and the sun in that final battle. In northern areas, wolves are heavily connected with shapeshifting and with shamanism, a theme that we've seen develop over time into a real focus on the werewolf as a figure and the idea that humans could transform into wolves. But in earlier days in northern areas, they tended to be connected with warriorship in particular, even as a rite of passage or as a tribe that one might belong to or a sense of group membership. Across the whole circumpolar Region, including Canada and Indigenous cultures, especially along the West Coast, there was a tradition and still is in Indigenous cultures of costuming as a wolf and performing a wolf in ceremony, in ritual, in performance of the animistic kinship between humans and wolves, of that liminal space where you could be both or where you could step into the shoes or the skin of the other to experience life from their perspective and perhaps embody the qualities that they embody more naturally or more easily than humans do. And I've seen a performance of an indigenous wolf dance accompanied by a story here in Smithers in my hometown by a Wet'suwet'en group. And the story was about how humans and wolves can help one another if we pay attention to their movements and their gestures and what they might be asking for. In the Christian era, in Europe, and also in Canada, these wolf dances and rituals and the practice of cloaking as a wolf or costuming as a wolf were outlawed and suppressed earlier in Europe and later in North America. When you mention wolves in European folklore, There's always the twin presence of sheep to think about. And I've already mentioned it in this episode. Stories and songs almost always associate the protection of innocent beings like children and sheep with the banishment or avoidance of wolves. Because wolves in the last thousand or more years were considered to be always hungry, always lurking, and eager to kill, which is not necessarily. image that they had before. Though they were feared by humans, they embodied certain qualities that could be desirable, for example, in a warrior culture, or in a culture that's animistic, or in a hunting and gathering culture, which would admire the prowess of the wolf. But in settled cultures that focus on pasturing animals, like sheep, that are not very good at self-defense, and have no freedom to roam, wolves, over time, tend to be associated with danger, evil, and threat, especially in cultures influenced by Christianity. And this is because Christianity has as one of its central metaphors the idea of the shepherd and his flock of sheep. And Christians model themselves, to an extent, on sheep on this sense of innocence and naivete and purity, as opposed to the idea of the wild and powerful wolf figure that has desires and appetites that are not desirable in the Christian framework. There's a story from Aesop's fables, so pre-Christian notions of wolf symbolism are at play here that I'll read to you. It's called The Wolf and the Dog. And this story associates the wolf with liberty, because they run free across the landscape and are obviously majestic and beautiful, as we all know. This version is from the book called Aesop for Children, from the American Library of Congress. There once was a wolf who got very little to eat because the dogs of the village were so wide awake and watchful. He was really nothing but skin and bones, and it made him very downhearted to think of it. One night this wolf happened to fall in with a fine, fat house dog who had wandered a little too far from home. The wolf would gladly have eaten him then and there, But the house dog looked strong enough to leave his marks should he try it. So the wolf spoke very humbly to the dog, complimenting him on his fine appearance. You can be as well-fed as I am if you want to, replied the dog. Leave the woods. There you live miserably. Why, you have to fight hard for every bite you get. Follow my example, and you will get along beautifully. What must I do, asked the wolf. Hardly anything, answered the house dog. Chase people who carry canes, bark at beggars, and fawn on the people of the house. In return, you'll get tidbits of every kind, chicken bones, choice bits of meat, sugar, cake, and much more besides, not to speak of kind words and caresses. The wolf had such a beautiful vision of his coming happiness that he almost wept. But just then, he noticed that the hair on the dog's neck was worn, and the skin was chafed what is that on your neck? Nothing at all, replied the dog. What? Nothing? Oh, just a trifle. But please tell me. Perhaps you see the mark of the collar to which my chain is fastened. What? A chain? cried the wolf. Don't you go wherever you please? Not always, but what's the difference? replied the dog. All the difference in the world, I don't care a rap for your feasts, and I wouldn't take all the tender young lambs in the world at that price. And away ran the wolf to his woods. Next I'll share a song sung by Yona Yinton, but written by Astrid Lindgren for the children's book Ronya Robber's Daughter. And this song is sung in the film based on the book. This is a modern Swedish children's book that's based on medieval folklore. The song is sung at Ranya's birth by her mother. It acknowledges that the wolf is outside, cold and hungry, but as the mother cradles Rania in her arms, she tells the wolf just the same, wolf, wolf, come not here. This is Varisangen, The Wolf Song, by Jona Jinten.
1: Ungen min får du aldrig. Du var i. Du var i. Kom inte hit Ungen min får du.
0: This intense association of wolves with rabid hunger and ruthless killing and predation to the neglect of any positive qualities at all maps pretty clearly onto the spread of Christianity through Europe. And the mark of that shift from wild landscape into the domestication of sheep on a massive scale, which eventually came to be called the Agricultural Revolution and displaced most of the peasants in Europe, is still visible in the landscapes, especially of countries like Ireland, Scotland, England, and Iceland, though there aren't any wolves there, and never were. Because in these places, sheep have grazed the landscape to an almost desert-like state. It looks very pretty in photographs, but it speaks to an enormous loss of animal and plant species diversity over the centuries which I can't entirely blame Christianity specifically for, but is part of that same matrix, that same idea that wildness is bad and domestication is good. It's pretty insane to notice that the more industrialized our production of helpless sheep for human consumption is, the more that we have equated the wolf with pure evil, heartless murder, and overkill. It's pretty obvious whenever you look at wolf folklore, and a lot of people have pointed this out, that the very thing we fear about wolves is something we do far more than wolves ever have as humankind. Wolves are not breeding sheep for consumption, but we are, and we're doing so more than ever before. And this isn't a rant about vegetarianism. I'm not personally a vegetarian, though I heavily support those who are. I just think it's really important to notice how extreme our projection onto animals that are living by their nature of things that we're doing is and how detrimental that is to their survival. If we can take the parts of ourselves that we're projecting onto other beings and see them as neutral and even potentially beautiful, our capacity to kill, our capacity to bring death into the world, then maybe we can heal our relationship to those things and we can do them in moderation and in sacred ways instead, such as the Lupercalia ritual where two animals are slaughtered, sacrificed, and then eaten. But so much importance is put onto their death that it's so much more meaningful than how we are seeing death of animals these days in general. We've also projected the notion of this patriarchal hierarchical authority onto wolves. You may be familiar with the idea of the alpha wolf. That's a male wolf that dominates the pack, also been referred to as the alpha pair. Male and female wolf that dominate the pack. And this is a totally false notion that originated in observations of wolves in captivity that are not related to one another. And the researcher that suggested it in the first place, David Mech, has been working to correct the assumption ever since. And I'll include a link to his article about wolf pack dynamics in the show notes. Just like humans, wolf packs tend to be family groups, and they're led by the natural leaders among them, which are the parents. We've invested so much in the notion of nature as a competition for survival that it seems, historically, we've believed that we had to annihilate anything that eats the same food as we do. And though we use violence regularly to create food for ourselves, we take it for granted that violence is somehow bad and that we should be the only ones who are allowed to do it. The expression, a wolf in sheep's clothing, that's very common in the English language, That refers to a person with bad intentions who's trying to blend in with a group of innocent, naive others by wearing a disguise. It brings up the idea of wearing a wolf costume in ritual and inverts it and turns it into this defamatory idea that wolves are sneaky and dishonorable and in some ways could be considered an anti-indigenous and anti-pagan sentiment if you look at the scope of history and how wolf lore has played out. Another image of the wolf costume being worn is from the saga literature and the image of the Ulfhaven, the wolf hood or wolf skin, which is a warrior who would wear a wolf hood or a wolf skin related to berserkers who are at least symbolically wearing the skin of a bear. And going into a battle trance, embodying the wild animal in battle, and there's an image on a piece of art found from the sixth to eighth century called the Torslinda plates, because they're found in Torslinda, which depicts a man wearing a wolf skin next to one wearing a headdress and apparently dancing. That's related to this notion of the warrior in wolf clothing embodying the wolf being, and this notion of the wolf-costumed person in ritual, which I've mentioned more than once, might explain the popularity of werewolf tales in the written record across European history, which became increasingly popular in the Christian era as an image of a human being who, in many cases, has gone wild and may be exhibiting cannibalistic tendencies. There are very few positive representations of werewolves though there are many, there's this idea that humans could change into wolves and wolves could change into humans. There's a sense that wolves are liminal or in between. This is probably due to the fact that their period of activity is at twilight and at dawn. And it's no surprise then that they show up in the folklore of February, because February is like the dawn of the year. If Yule or the winter solstice is midnight or the dark before dawn, then February and moving into spring would be what's called the wolf hour now in Scandinavia. And I've heard this being called like an old folklore term, but I understand that it was actually invented by Ingmar Bergen, the filmmaker who made a film of that title. It's a horror film. And he says that between 3 and 5 a.m., when wolves are especially active, most births and deaths occur. And though the term Varitimen is not like a historical thing, it touches on so many historical themes and facts about wolves that it may as well be, and it has quickly become new folklore. Here is Ulvetimen, The Hour of the Wolf, by Maria Franz and Christopher Yule. From the band Heilung. ¶¶ Of the dawn, as I was before that song, the Irish goddess called Bridget, through her later form as a Christian saint, was said to be born at dawn, on the threshold of a house. She is also associated with liminal times, much like the wolf, and she is connected with wolves in some of her stories as well. She's a protector of wolves. She's connected to the sun and to the sunrise through the etymology of her name, which probably means or connects her to hills and high places. She's also said to hang her cloak on the rays of the sun. And she was known also as the midwife of Jesus. She's celebrated on Imbolc, which is February 1st, which was a pagan holiday connected to ewe milk, as in sheep's milk. And this year in Ireland is the first time that St. Bridget's Day will be celebrated as a national holiday. And it's the first national holiday in Ireland to be named after a woman or a feminine mythological figure. So Bridget began as a Celtic goddess, which is well documented in Irish texts. But in Christian times, she was Known as an early nun and an abbess of Ireland, she established many monasteries, famously one at Kildare. It seems that the two figures are one and the folklore runs parallel for both. So many of the things that are said about Saint Brigid came from the earlier pagan goddess Brigid. She may have been a druid who converted her temple to Christianity in her lifetime, symbolically bridging the gap between the two traditions. It is understood that Kildare was a pagan temple site, under a sacred oak, before the abbey was established there. It's hard to say how exactly they're connected, but their fates have been braided together ever since. Bridget is the protector and promoter of fertility, in the home, on the farm, and in the fields. She was also strongly associated with fire and light, and a perpetual flame was said to keep burning in her honor by her devotees in pagan times. And now the nuns at the Abbey of Kildare have also revived the practice of maintaining a perpetual flame burning in her honor. She was believed to visit the houses of the people who care for her and who were particularly good on her feast day, and many preparations were made in Ireland historically for her arrival, and I should say Scotland as well. Based on that belief, people would leave out food for her, bread and butter, or some corn for her favorite cow. In Scotland, they might set a small feast table for her in the kitchen. In both Ireland and Scotland, people would make a bed for her out of hay or straw or corn, sometimes the last sheaf of grain. And people might leave candles burning next to it overnight in the hopes that she would come and feel welcome to stay. Folks would also spread the ashes of the hearth called Smooring, evenly before bed, so in the morning they could see if she'd left a footprint behind from her visit. If she did, this was a sign that she'd been there and left her blessing on the household and the animals. One of the main folk traditions that remains to this day in Ireland is to fashion what's called a St. Bridget's Cross out of rushes or hay, and by folding the rushes over each other until they make a four- or sometimes a three-legged cross. And everybody would make these together in the house, sprinkle them with holy water, and hang them over the doorway or the beds, or sometimes in the byre, the animal barn. And their purpose was pretty clear. <laughs> it was to protect the household, its residents, and its livestock from fire, storm, lightning, but also illness and bad spirits. Crosses are a powerful symbol of protection and also order. They're made up of right angles and they also demonstrate a barrier or a boundary between things, but also possibly the intersection between worlds. It's hard to list all of the associations that Bridget had, but I should say that she is still an incredibly powerful figure in both Scotland and Ireland. And the practice of making Saint Bridget's crosses remains. One of her lesser-known associations, at least abroad, is one that connects her with death. Rituals, and I think in a really beautiful way, balances her associations with birth. This connection comes from the Irish sagas and an account of a clash between the Tuaha de Danan and the Formorians in the Battle of Moitura. In this battle, Brigid's son was slain in an attempt to kill the smith of the Tuaha de Danan. Here is an account of his death after he had a spear made for him. After the spear had been given to him, Ruadan turned and wounded Gobnu. He pulled out the spear and hurled it at Ruadan, so that it went through him, and he died in his father's presence in the Formorian assembly. Brige came and keened for her son. At first she shrieked, in the end she wept. Then, for the first time, weeping and shrieking were heard in Ireland. So Brigid, or Brige, is attributed with the invention of the practice of keening, that is singing a mourning song, which is a remarkably beautiful part of Gaelic expressive culture, and one associated especially with women. Women have historically, in many cultures, been connected with death rites and practices, and specifically with performative Ritualized mourning. And keening is a practice which fell out of favor for a very long time in Gaelic-speaking countries, but has recently seen somewhat of a resurgence. So in honor of the first expression of musical sorrow by a woman, this is Mary's Keen by the Irish Sean Noss singer Noiren Narian. February 2nd is celebrated on the Christian calendar as Candle Mass, when the church's supply of candles for the year would be consecrated, and a measure of them would be lit and carried in procession. So a lot of times churchgoers would bring their own candles from home to be blessed on this day. This occasion on the liturgical calendar marked the Virgin Mary's purification after childbirth, the first presentation at the temple in Jerusalem. So, in the Hebrew tradition at that time, it was customary for a woman to endure 40 days of seclusion after childbirth, at which time she was permitted to enter the temple again and undergo a purification ceremony. So, that's what Candle Mass in the Christian tradition is about. After birth, Mary being purified. There is a sense in folk tradition beyond that specific biblical interpretation of purification after the Christmas or the Yule season, which I mentioned in the previous episode with the idea of Canute chasing out the Yule and a lot of raucous costumed celebrations being about scaring away the spirits that are present in the wintertime, which is also what Carnival is about and Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras. I think we can personally even now still identify with this concept of cleaning out of winter in the notion of spring cleaning, that we've kind of got stuck in our ways sometimes, and we may feel like we've experienced some excess and some separation from community as well in the winter period, that in the springtime, we want to start shaking up and clearing out, which is a more neutral way to think about purification without having to think about women's bodies being somehow unclean. This is also when things start to clear up in the skies, and we tend to see more sunlight, which is a sense of clarity as well. One of the loveliest pagan elements that endure as part of the candle mass celebration is in Slavic areas, and this tradition is called gromnica, and people in many areas would make their own candles at this time, and they would be called thunder candles, gromnica being derived from the word for thunder. There's a wild story that connects these thunder candles and fire and this notion of childbirth and purification with the Virgin Mary and wolves. So stories told at this time of year, which I mostly know about from imagery, because I don't speak any Slavic languages, they depict Mary, the Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus, wielding a candle that shoots flames. And this is called the thunder candle. And she is said to protect the villagers from wolves, which may be attacking at this time of year or show up around the edges of villages. Then again, other images show the Virgin Mary protecting the wolves from hunters. One of the primary uses of this homemade candle is that it would be used in folk magic for the rest of the year. So it might be lit whenever a dangerous or sort of in-between liminal event was happening, like a thunderstorm or childbirth or illness. So you would light your thunder candle, which was consecrated on February 2nd at church, and it would help bring protection, and in the case of death, light the way to the other world. These thunder-related Christian traditions in Slavic and to a lesser extent, Baltic areas on February 2nd, derive from an earlier pagan holiday. The beginning of February was associated with the thunder god, who is called perkunas or Perun. And like the Norse thunder god Thor that most of us know about, this god was not only a master of thunder and lightning, but also a god of fertility and of justice and order. The idea is that the Appearance of thunder starts at this time of year and it is believed to purify bodies of water and make them safe to go into again. There's an analog to this holiday in Scandinavia and it's called St. Peter Hotstone. So it's at the end of February and at the beginning of what's called Thor's month in a lot of Scandinavian tradition and has been attributed to St. Peter whose saint day falls at that time. Who in folk tradition is described as breaking up the ice on the lakes by throwing hot stones at them, much like lightning bolts would strike at wrongdoers or people who defy the order that thunder gods represent and maintain. Perkunas, much like the figure of Thor, is known for striking thunderbolts at beings who have done things that he doesn't support. So in Lithuania, Perkunas discovered that Menwa, the moon god, who was the husband of Saulė, the sun goddess, had committed adultery, had cheated on his wife. So Perkunas punished him by cutting him to pieces. (laughs) The image of a thunder god bearing an axe or a hammer and striking at others probably comes from the image of lightning, Striking the earth and trees and balancing energy because lightning is electrical energy that's unbalanced and needs to ground into the earth. Something that comes up for me as we're going through all of this material and talking about holidays of purification and justice and equalizing forces is the question, what is purification to pagans? And in some cases, I think it is This idea of targeted violence or breaking apart of elements that are unbalanced in some way, striking at something that's in the wrong place, but also sometimes striking fertility into things, like in the Lupercalia ritual, but also a lot of folk tradition associates thunder gods with the fertility of plants, that thunder being the precursor of rain, brings and strikes fertility and life force into the earth. The idea of purification by a thunder god or by lightning really clearly connects to forest fires because lightning is one of the main causes of forest fires, and they are a natural part of the regeneration of plant life and the carbon cycle. I also think sometimes the idea of purification can be a reintegration, that when we shine light on something, when we draw attention to something, we bring it to our awareness and we can't heal something that may be out of balance or wrong with us until we really directly address it and we look at it very clearly through like a strike of inspiration and sight and vision. Because the healing process has to do with reintegration. You can think of that mother that's been secluded after birth, or you can think about how we're alone in our houses in the wintertime just because of the weather. And in the springtime, we need to come back together and shake off our separation from the community through dance and through rituals full of laughter and play and light, perhaps. I think what's useful for us overall, is to think about this idea of purification in February, imagining categories of things, predator and prey, birth and death, and understanding them in light of one another, and trying to hold them all together, when they have sometimes been split apart, unnaturally. How can we integrate the parts of ourselves and of our society that we've been told are polar opposites, or we've been told some of them need to go or remain hidden in darkness forever. Can we be a little more comfortable with those border regions between the parts of ourselves, between the parts of ourselves that are light and young and clean and naive, and the parts of ourselves that are dark and elder and powerful and dangerous? our society has a very strong need for integration of the ideas of birth and death both, not that birth is even entirely accepted in our culture either. I want to call to our attention as well that there is this really strong connection between life and death and concepts of purity and the feminine. Because in traditional cultures of Europe, Women specifically hold the door to life open on both ends, not only birth, but also the end of life. And in these images of wolves suckling children that you see around European folklore, and in specifically the Romulus and Remus story, behind them is also a story of a woman with an unwanted pregnancy, right? These stories of child exposure and of child death are integral to stories of birth and are another aspect, a shadow in our culture that we are not dealing very maturely with at this moment in history. There is something also to be said about community and support. Though the wolf is a symbol of freedom, freedom can't exist in the absence of community there is no such thing in a sustainable sense as a lone wolf. Wolves are incredibly community oriented, as humans are as well. You don't get free by running away, maybe initially, but your sustained freedom comes from speaking to what has happened in your personal life or in our culture over time, and eventually integrating those stories and those parts of ourselves again. But I hope. You can take away from this episode is the idea that wolves, sheep, humans, women, men, warriors, shepherds, we're all kin. And these stories and rituals of February in particular want to remind us that the polarity of life and death, of violence and peace, are part of a rich tapestry of a circle of a necessary boundary that we traverse in our lives and also in this month that's at the verge of the dawn of the year. The wolf is a symbol of wildness and wildness is the thing that we are so desperately working to restore as people who work in traditional culture and who are interested in re-embracing it. May you take the hand of your wilder self this month and just listen to what it might have to tell you and what the voice of the wolf might be singing into your ear. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the music in it, please visit the show notes and learn more about the artists and purchase music directly from them. I've also created a playlist to go with this episode because... As you might imagine, there are a lot of amazing songs about wolves. This time I've put it on Tidal, and I'll link it in the show notes. I have learned that Tidal is a platform that pays artists better than Spotify does, and I want to support artists as much as you do in continuing to make the music that we love to hear so much. Thank you especially to Sylvia Woods, whose track, Forest March, is the opening theme to Fair Folk. I'll leave you with a song by Wadruna called Grau with lyrics that are quite touching to me that address the gray wolf directly. It says, I remember when you roamed freely. I remember when we roamed together. I remember us before our paths got separated. I remember the circle before it broke. You may run to my forests, roam freely in my mountains. Lead your pack to my valleys. Let us restore the circle. I shall sing you safe on your way. I shall sing you safely home. Take good care, and I'll talk to you soon.
2: Ringen för bråkna